welcome to Let's Talk Family Law, a podcast focusing on all aspects of family law. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the latest installment of Weber Gallagher's Family Law Podcast, which we've called Let's Talk Family Law. My name is John Zerzola, and I am a partner in the Family Law Department at Weber Gallagher. Um, we centralize our practice uh, in Norristown, where we're located in Norristown, which gives us the ability to easily access the courthouses um, of the five-county Philadelphia area, which of course includes Philadelphia, uh, Norristown, Westchester, Doylestown for Bucks County, and Media for Delaware County. Also, when our clients need, we are able to go and litigate family law cases in the southern counties of New Jersey, like Gloucester, Burlington, Camden, and even as far as Atlantic County. Um, I'm here today to talk about divorce. Um, In the context of family law, we have a lot of different areas that encompass a typical family law case, divorce obviously being, you know, the the big one. Um, But frequently family law issues uh, can encompass issues of child support, child custody, spousal support, um, domestic violence, adoption. Today I'm going to focus really more on divorce. How do you get divorced? What's involved in divorce? Um, What happens when um, a divorce is, as people say, filed with the court? What needs to be done in order to get that piece of paper or to become what I'll call financially divorced, which means dividing all the things that you guys uh, as husband and wife have accumulated over the years, which you're going to come to find is the biggest part of divorce by far. So let's jump right in and call uh, a divorce case exactly what it is. A divorce case is a lawsuit, just like any other lawsuit that you might hear about or see on TV, uh, whether it's a car accident or whether it's someone suing somebody for money damages. Divorce is a lawsuit. There's a plaintiff, the person who files the lawsuit, and there's a defendant, the person that didn't file the lawsuit and is being sued. In this context, even if two parties get together and they, they, they decide that it's time to divorce, there still is going to be a complaint filed with the court to where there's going to be a plaintiff and there's going to be a defendant. The plaintiff, again, is the person that files first. Um, and much like any other lawsuit, all of the formalities that go into um, prosecuting a lawsuit or defending a lawsuit are, are the same. So, for instance, uh, after a complaint in divorce is filed in a county, um, and we'll talk a little bit about where you should file your complaint, after a complaint is filed, the person who didn't file the complaint, the defendant, has to get served. Um, And sometimes it happens like you see on TV where somebody goes up to another person and says, are you so-and-so? Here you've been served. That's personal service. Um, The other ways that a person can be served with a divorce complaint is that they could accept service. They could take it from the person who filed it. And they could fill out a paper that acknowledges that they were served with the complaint. 
Another way is that they could uh, be served by mail by signing a uh, green signature card, um, certified mail. And then there's another way to do it, which is much, much more complicated when the defendant is unable to be located, and that's called substituted service. Um, the courts require that folks demonstrate multiple opportunities to locate the defendant and to find them, to serve them, and that they've done all kinds of things in order to prove whether they're alive, whether they're dead. A motion is filed with the court after the divorce complaint is filed, and you ask the court for permission to consider the person served. It's called substituted service. Now, the reason I'm focusing on, on this so much is because really, filing of the complaint is, is obviously a big step. The lawsuit is initiated. But service is really when all of the, the time starts. That's when the clock starts ticking with respect to, are you really on your road of getting your divorce? Now, in order to, to have this lawsuit go through, <clears throat> and I continue to call it a lawsuit because that's what it is, um, unlike another case where you would have to go before a judge and prove your case, prove that the person owes you money, prove that the person hit your car, things like that. In divorce, it's a little bit different. The way you prove your case and the way you get to a spot where a judge can enter a divorce decree is that you have to demonstrate that things called grounds for divorce exist, grounds for divorce. Um, these might be terms you're familiar with. Um, now, in the context of grounds for divorce, <clears throat> excuse me, in the context of grounds for divorce, you have things called fault grounds, and then you have things called no-fault grounds, and no-fault grounds are a creature of the statute. The statute says that we have no-fault divorce in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. I'm really going to tailor my presentation here to Pennsylvania, but it's not so much different in New Jersey. Now, fault grounds. Fault grounds are the things that you may uh, be familiar with from movies and TV. <clears throat> fault grounds are cases where a person files for divorce and they are alleging certain things like desertion, adultery, cruel and barbarous treatment, bigamy, imprisonment of the defendant for more than two years, uh, indignities, uh, indignities that the that the defendant made the plaintiff suffer that the statute says have become intolerable and burdensome. And then insanity, if a person is um, adjudged to be insane and they've been committed to an institution for more than 18 months, an individual can file a divorce complaint and get divorced based upon these fault grounds, which they have to prove. Now, because of the fact that Pennsylvania has a no-fault provision in their divorce statute, these are things that really are very old-fashioned, proving fault grounds for divorce. Indeed, in many ways, the process of proving a fault divorce can actually take longer than going through the steps of obtaining a no-fault divorce, and I'll describe what no-fault divorce is now. No-fault divorce is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, no blame is being assigned to anybody. No types of uh, fault or, or conduct need to be alleged in the complaint or need to be proven before a judge, before a judge may grant the parties a divorce decree. 
And what you're going to find at these no-fault grounds are really more just hoops that you have to jump over, time limits that you have to satisfy, a bunch of forms that you need to fill out and send in the correct order, which allow the court to find that the no-fault grounds exist in order for you to be divorced. The no-fault grounds are really two. Um, there's a, and the, and the statute, if you go to a divorce lawyer or if you read in uh, some of the internet um, articles that are available, the first no-fault ground is 3301C of the divorce code. That's literally the, the, the title um, and the number of the statute. 3301C divorce says that 90 days after service of the complaint, this is why I said earlier that service of the complaint really is the thing that uh, triggers the process, 90 days after service of the complaint, both parties can sign an affidavit which basically says that they agree to a divorce. So in reality, if for instance what a couple is looking for is again just a piece of paper just that divorce decree that says that you are now released from the bonds of matrimony, that you're divorced. Um, 90 days after the person files and serves the complaint, both parties can sign affidavits, and there's a few other forms, and their divorce decree might come in the mail very quickly. Um, with a simple uncontested divorce, and I'll talk about what uncontested means, with a simple uncontested divorce, and the waiting periods that are inherent in the statute, we can have folks divorced in four to five months. Um, that's usually your cases where either the parties have uh, distributed all their property, they have no financial issues between them, or if, for instance, some folks don't have anything to distribute, they don't have property, they don't have cars and houses together, they don't have debts or bank accounts, they just want to get divorced and they both agree that they'll be able to be divorced. A 90-day 3301C divorce, uncontested divorce, is something that's available. The second way that you can prove a no-fault ground, and again it's more or less just like a, a hoop that people have to jump over, is called a 3301D. That's the code section in the divorce uh, code. And that's a one-year separation divorce. So you might ask yourself, well, I don't understand. Why would there be a divorce where you can get divorced in 90 days? And then why would there be a divorce where you, could, you have to wait a year? Well, here, it used to be two years. The statute was changed recently. There used to be the 90-day divorce and then the two-year separation divorce. The legislature has seen fit to reduce that second waiting period down to one year. Um, the reason that this code section exists is because very often when you have a 3301D one-year separation divorce, that will signify that the case is a contested case, not an uncontested case like I talked about earlier where the parties decide they want to be divorced and they're just going to go ahead and sign whatever it takes in order to get divorced. Um, in, in this area of the law and with, with couples, very often one person doesn't want to get divorced. Um, so the law provides a no-fault ground to allow a divorce after certain things uh, like the one-year waiting period are achieved, one-year waiting period after service. 
also very common in 3301D divorces, really in both divorces, are the issues that people have with distributing their assets, dividing their assets, who gets what. That's the thing that's usually going to eat up that one-year waiting time. Even in cases where parties are perfectly willing to get divorced from each other and there's no animosity or if there is animosity, but both really want to get divorced, the process of distributing and dividing their property is the thing that takes the longest. So sometimes that one-year period can go by really quickly. The next reason and the most important reason, like I alluded to earlier, for the one-year separation divorce is that the other side just might not be doing anything. They don't want to get divorced. They're not interested in sharing information, and they're just, they don't, maybe they don't believe it's happening. Well, after that one year, that is when the plaintiff can begin to what we call move the court in order to bring the case to a conclusion. So whether the other person wants to be divorced or not, whether fault is an issue, which it wouldn't be, the other person, the plaintiff that filed the lawsuit, can begin the process of putting the case in court in order to have it heard and to eventually get you divorced. And there are a lot of steps that need to be taken uh, during that time. A couple of other issues before we get into uh, division of property and equitable distribution, there's a few things we should mention that folks always ask us about is um, annulments. Annulments are still a creature of the divorce code. And annulment uh, essentially means, in layman's terms, that the marriage never existed. And there's a host of reasons that um, parties can have their marriage annulled. And it usually has to do with things akin to the fault grounds, but, but really much worse. Things like bigamy, um, lack of consent, or a mental disorder. Maybe a person was intoxicated when they got married. Impotence, fraud or if uh, a person is under 16 or 17 and they lacked the consent of their guardian in order to get divorced or in order to get married. Those are the kinds of things where a marriage might be able to be annulled. And there's a bunch of other reasons too. However, um, I should say that in order to annul a marriage, just like to prove a fault ground, it may actually be more complicated and take more time than uh, to obtain a simple uh, 3301C 90-day divorce or a one-year separation divorce. Pennsylvania still has common law marriage, um, although uh, it, should be, it should be defined. Um, a common law marriage is not something that, um, you, you again, people see on TV where after seven years people are automatically married. Um, a common law marriage is something that is established by virtue of the facts. Um, and in Pennsylvania, um, the legislature has seen fit to, uh, for lack of a better word, outlaw the formation of a common law marriage that is alleged to have occurred after January 1st of 2005. Um, so today in Pennsylvania, a common law marriage cannot be formed anymore. In order to be married after January 1st of 2005, folks have have to go through the process of really getting married, walking down the aisle or going to a judge, uh, having a marriage license and getting married. However, we still have cases where parties allege that common law marriages were formed before January 1st of 2005, and that their living situation and the way they conducted themselves in public 
how they paid bills, how they lived together before January 1st of 2005 shows that they are married at common law. And just like if you're married at common law or married any other way, you can get divorced. So you may read in the literature that Pennsylvania no longer has common law marriage, and that's true, but it's not really true, But we could, because we could still find people that allege that they were married at common law. So now, you've filed your complaint, and you've alleged all the different things that you need to allege. Perhaps in your complaint, which is very common, you've requested a 90-day separation divorce, or you've requested a one-year separation divorce, um, and you've gone ahead and you've served the other person, what happens now? Well, nothing happens now unless one of the parties or both of the parties moves the case along. Now, if it's a kind of a case with no uh, property issues, no child support, no alimony issues, parties don't have to divide anything, then maybe the divorce goes very quickly. But at this time is when we start to gather up the marital assets in order to try to figure out what the marital estate consists of so that either by way of agreement or by way of going to court and having a trial on the issues, um, the parties will, able, will be able to divide their property and then get divorced. Um, there is a feature in the law which allows people to get divorced prior to dividing their property but the courts pretty much frown upon that because that means the case isn't over and there are pretty important things happening out there in the world with two parties that have not yet been resolved. Courts don't like to give divorce decrees prior to uh, issues of assets and debts being uh, squared away. Now, the law that covers the issue of dividing property is, is called equitable distribution. Equitable distribution means, in a sense, that the assets, the debts, all the things that you've accumulated and which are included in the marital estate are equitably divided. So what does that mean? Well, the answer to that is that we don't know what that means. Um, in order to equitably divide something, um, that's done on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, either by agreement or by the court saying what should be fair, what should be equitable. This is a little different than states that have what's called community property where there's a presumption that people are going to get a certain percentage of what is um, considered a marital asset or a marital debt. Equitable distribution involves um, a case-by-case -case look at the parties um, look at the situation of each spouse, how they're going to wind up uh, after the marriage, what they brought to the marriage, and then it's basically like a judgment call. So there are very little guidelines on this. However, before I go into really how the courts talk about equitable distribution, the first step is to identify what is marital property. This is usually the longest part of trying to get couples divorced, identifying what is a marital asset, identifying what's included in the marital estate, and then uh, valuation of that. And this is where a lot of disagreements um, come into play. This is where a lot of assets, um, or rather resources, like attorney's fees, things like that, time, this is where a lot of things are uh, expended 
um, in a typical divorce case. It's the reason why some divorces drag on so long. People can't believe that they're not divorced yet. They've been doing this for two years, three years. Well, it's always going to go back to the fact that um, either the work wasn't done or one of the parties is deciding that they're not going to cooperate in order to figure out what the marital estate consists of. Now, the statute, the divorce code, does give a definition of what is a marital asset. And it literally says marital property means all property acquired by either party during the marriage and the increase in value of any non-marital property acquired um, prior to the marriage. That's not a real great definition. It is, I mean, obviously, if you can identify a house that the parties purchased after they walked down the aisle, well, that's going to be an easy one. That's a, uh, that's a marital asset. Um, really, the statute goes more into defining what is not marital property, and I'll go through <clears throat> a few of those things right now. <clears throat> the statute talks about what's not marital property. Um, property acquired prior to the marriage or property acquired in exchange for property acquired prior to the marriage. Not marital property is property excluded by a valid agreement between the parties entered into before, during, or after the marriage. I'm going to stop there. What could I, what do you mean by an agreement? Well, these are prenuptial agreements. Perhaps folks, before they walk down the aisle, uh, execute uh, or sign between them a comprehensive prenuptial agreement. And the prenuptial agreement actually talks about things about what is marital property, what is not marital property. Um, will I have to pay alimony? Would I be entitled to alimony? And often in a good prenuptial agreement, which we draft very frequently, there are benchmarks. For instance, what if we're married for five years? Or what if we're married for 10 years? Do the circumstances change? What if we have children? Things like that. A good prenuptial agreement is one that really looks at what parties have, what their goals are, and looks into the future a little bit about what their situation could be in the 5, 10, 15, or even 20 years down the road if, God forbid, um, they are getting divorced. So with prenuptial agreements, you also have postnuptial agreements. We have cases where folks decide they don't really want to be married but they don't want to lose the benefits of being married, health insurance, uh, status in their community, all kinds of different reasons that people want to be separated but not really divorced. And in those situations, parties can execute a postnuptial agreement, <clears throat> which in a sense is, is like a, a divorce agreement, a settlement agreement, but it's one that talks about what you're going to do with your assets and your debts after you've actually been married. So when we're talking about what's not marital property, um, and, the, and the statute says property excluded by a valid agreement, that means property that is dealt with in either a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement. Some other examples of things that are not marital property are property acquired by gift, um, except if the spouses give, them, give each other a gift, or through uh, inheritance. Um, certainly property acquired after the parties split up, and we'll talk about a little bit more about separation, after separation is not marital property. Um, veterans benefits and certain other benefits are not marital property. Um, and payments that are received as a, as a result of a settlement, maybe somebody got into a car accident or something like that, that 
the claim happened either before they got married or after they got married. So it's easy to see that the statute, when it talks about um, marital property means all property acquired during the marriage um, and the increase in value of that property, the statute goes on a little bit further to talk about what specifically is not marital property. All right, so you filed your complaint, you've gotten service, and now you're in the process of discussing with your attorney um, and the other side uh, what is marital property. The, the situation that um, allows you to do that in case the, unless the parties know exactly what they have. A lot of times folks come to us and they have very little or they have a lot, but both spouses are pretty in tune with what they have. Um, in those cases, it might be easy to gather the marital estate, figure out what the marital estate is, and everybody agrees. But there's other cases where, you know, it, it might have been one person's job in the household to pay the bills, to steer the, the ship, as it were, um, to know what investments they have, to know what things are worth. Um, a lot of times, the other side just doesn't know what they have in terms of what could be considered a marital asset. The tools we use as lawyers um, are encompassed in what we call discovery. There's a period of time where we're able to discover what the marital estate is, discover uh, things about the other side which will allow us to include things or exclude things in the marital estate. You may have heard of uh, things called interrogatories where you get to ask the other person questions, written questions requests for production of documents. These are uh, things that we <clears throat> send to the other side, excuse me, <clears throat> where they have to produce documents, tax returns, bank statements, retirement accounts, things like this. There are cases where the other side just doesn't want to give these things up uh, because either they don't want to get divorced or they're, they're trying to, to hide things. And then we have uh, situations where the other side could actually be deposed. You could take a deposition of the other side to get their words on, um, on the record so that if, for instance, they're hiding something or they lie, you may be able to come back and have some uh, the court deal with that at a later date. So you're doing your discovery and you're finding out what's included in the marital estate. Well, things that are typically included in the marital estate are pretty easy, but I'll go through them uh, really quickly. And this is what you usually want to talk about with your, this is what your divorce attorney anyway wants to talk about when you first go see them and then for a substantial amount of time after that. Divorce attorneys want to know about real property, which is real estate. Um, when was the marital home purchased? Do you have rental properties? Do you have a house down the shore? How is it titled? Is it in your name? Um, was it acquired by one of the parties before the marriage? Um, did you both go to the settlement and both of your names are on the deed and the mortgage together? Cars. Cars are another um, area where there's an actual title. There's a document that says who owns it. Was the car purchased during the marriage? Was the car purchased with funds that a person had before they were married? There's all kinds of um, aspects of marital property which might make them not marital property. Maybe somebody cashes out a retirement account that they earned before they were married in order to buy your first house. Well, that's an examination of, of marital property where we're going to have to maybe carve some of the value of that out. 
something that's otherwise marital property which might not be marital property. Other types of titled assets are things like uh, what we call toys, ATVs, motorcycles, campers, things that have titles with the state that say who owns them or not. We're going to want to know about all those things. Personal property is not titled. Couches, televisions, um, clothes, heirlooms, jewelry, things like this we're going to want to know about. But these are things that are a little bit tougher because they're not titled. And there could be a story that accompanies those assets, which you might need to tell somebody in order to prove how you acquired them. Um, and then, of course, retirement benefits. Retirement benefits up there with real estate are some of the biggest areas that we are dealing with as divorce attorneys because retirement benefits that were earned during the marriage are a marital property. Retirement benefits that were earned prior to the marriage which have increased in value, real estate also increased in value, these types of things are a marital asset. A portion of them is a marital asset. So very quickly, if you think about it, you, you, you're married to somebody that's been working and has a pension. They came to the marriage with a pension. Maybe they were a police officer or a firefighter, or maybe they work for a big company that has a pension. Um, the portion of the pension or the retirement benefit or the 401k or the IRA that was earned prior to marriage is not marital property. However, that portion that they brought with them to the marriage which has now grown in value because of interest, because of market appreciation. These are things that are marital property. We typically employ accountants and uh, forensic accountants and other types of professionals that are able to help us value what that increase in value is. But retirement benefits like pensions, like IRAs, like 401ks, certain deferred compensation plans, certain annuities that union members uh, may have. These are all things that come under the uh, area of retirement benefits, which are usually a very valuable asset, which you know you want to go to an attorney that has the experience in order to either uh, figure these things out on their own or has a network of professionals that we have in order to uncover assets, sometimes hidden assets, and get their true valuation. Um, in addition to the things I mentioned, uh, bank accounts, brokerage accounts, stock options, some deferred compensation that's not a retirement benefit, restricted stock units, things that other people are paid, other things that go into a person's income other than their wages are also very valuable things that we need to know about and which are included in the marital estate. So now we're figuring out what all the assets are. We also likewise have to figure out what all the debts are because just like the assets may be split up between the parties in some fashion, and when I say split, I don't mean 50-50 necessarily, um, just like the assets are divided, the debts will be divided. Mortgages, student loans, credit cards, tax liability, personal loans, things like this. So in reality, after the divorce complaint is filed, after you've gotten service of the complaint, the case really devolves into an examination of a couple's finances. It really becomes a financial exercise after that. 
um, dealing with two people that may not really be cooperating with each other, may not like each other, may have significant issues together which are distracting everyone from finding these things out, like custody issues, support issues, issues of domestic violence. These are the things that can sometimes <clears throat> hijack a divorce case, an otherwise normal divorce case where we're simply trying to get divorced, we're trying to figure out what the assets and debts are, and trying to come to an agreement about you know, how the parties should go. Other things can really hijack a family law case and cause the family law case to not consider the real issues in divorce, but go off into all these other areas, which are very uh, costly in terms of emotion and in terms of uh, just basically money. A lot of money can be spent going through all these things. So you've gathered a list of what the assets are, you've gathered, gathered a list of what the debts are, and now you're gonna move into what's called valuation, okay? It might not be agreed what the house is worth. It might not be agreed what uh, the value of personal property or a television is worth, or what a retirement account is worth. Valuation, which sometimes goes hand in hand with gathering the marital estate, really is something that is where we see a lot of disagreement between parties and which slows down a divorce case. Figuring out what the pension is worth, figuring out how much of the pension the other person is entitled to based upon whether it's a marital asset or not, figuring out what the house is worth. For instance, one spouse may want to stay in the house um, and then the other spouse thinks that the house is worth so much more so that then when their asset is given to them, when their portion of the house is given to them, it's either an unrealistic amount or it's an amount that's not supported by um, all the information that we have out there. And basically when you value assets during the valuation stage, you're getting things like appraisals of, of houses, current mortgage statements, you may need to get heirlooms appraised, things that um, have a significant value, cars, appraisals for cars minus what the amount of the loan is, for instance. Um, and with retirement benefits, Sometimes there are actually some very sophisticated um, analysis that goes to retirement benefits um, to value really what they are. For instance, if it's a pension, that is something that you get at the end of working somewhere for 30 years and it's a set dollar amount and no one can really tell us what the dollar amount is we'll get at the end of that 30 years and no one will be able to really tell us what the increase in the cost of living for that is. Sometimes there are some sophisticated analysis we have to go through called a present value analysis to find out what in real dollars a pension might be worth. Other retirement benefits are really easy to, to look at, like an IRA. It's basically worth how much the account is worth, um, a 401k. You can log on and find out what your 401k is worth right now. It is what it is. Um, sometimes you'll need to go through and subtract out what amount existed on the date of separation and then put some other uh, financial tools against that to figure out what, it's, what portion of that is marital, we say. But by and large, those retirement benefits like IRAs and 401ks are much easier to value than pensions. Okay. So you've gone through discovery and you've 
you've done all of the work in order to try to, to figure out what the marital estate is worth. Indeed, maybe both sides have come to an agreement on what's what and what things are valued and what the real dollar amount to the marital estate is. At that point, you're going to sort out who gets what, who keeps what, who's staying in the house, who's keeping the one car, things like this. This, as you can expect, is another area where significant disagreement can come into play and for which prior to the entry of the divorce decree or a settlement, you may need to go to court in order to sort out. Maybe one person needs to move out of the house. Maybe one person needs to prove to the court that they have the ability to keep the house after marriage. Maybe one person needs to go to court to show that it's in the children's best interest that they stay in the house and buy the other party out. There's a lot of things that go into getting your case ready to either settle or coming to an agreement as to who gets what or taking your case to court, which you may have to go to court before you go to court on the final issues having to do with um, what percentage people get in their, um, in their divorce case. So you've done all these things and it's possible that you can enter into a comprehensive property settlement agreement. Your attorney will always be willing to enter into a comprehensive property settlement agreement. The property settlement agreement will deal, a good property settlement agreement anyway, um, will deal with every single asset, every debt. It'll have timelines, it'll have benchmarks. It'll really be the roadmap that guides both of the parties, their attorneys and their professionals in splitting everything up so that you can again be financially divorced, which I called earlier. You're not going to see that term written down anywhere, but really, if you think about it, you can be divorced from the bonds of matrimony with that piece of paper, but you're not divorced until really you don't have anything else to do with each other in terms of um, your income and your assets. What's yours is yours, and what's the other person's is the other person's. So you can settle your case at this point. You can engage in a comprehensive property settlement agreement. Everybody can come and sign in front of a notary. And then either you together or you with the help of your professionals and your attorneys, you can begin to implement the property settlement agreement, split the retirement accounts, put the house on the market for sale, draft deeds, things like this. If you are not so lucky as to be able to settle your case, then your case will need to be prepared for court. And in, in most of the counties um, and in New Jersey, the first echelon of this review is not done by a judge, it's done by a master or a panel in New Jersey. A lawyer that's either hired or functions under the auspices of the court to make judgment calls on how your case should resolve. Um, a lot of times there is, there are rather multiple opportunities to meet with these types of individuals that are employed by the courts, the panels, the masters, so that they can give you an idea <clears throat> based upon the facts of your case, who these parties are, how much they make. There's a lot of opportunities to get some guidance as to how your case will probably be um, uh, ordered, who gets what. But if in the absence of an agreement, even at that stage, your case needs to be litigated, 
then the case needs to be fully prepared for the court. A host of documents at that point need to be drafted. And all the information that you gathered by way of discovery is put into sort of look a package um, so that the person who is going to be looking at this, a person that's never met you, doesn't know a thing about your situation, doesn't know you or your husband or your wife, doesn't maybe know your attorneys, they can see this in uh, chart form or, or narrative form um, so that they can get a handle on what the issues are in your case, what the assets and what the debts are, and then make a decision. This, again, is a very costly time for the parties in a divorce where the case is being litigated. There could be real issues, okay? There could be real issues of valuation. There could be real issues of um, the demands that one party is making on the other party. For instance, um, cases, cases generally settle or, or generally are ordered um, inequitable distribution, again, based upon what's fair and equitable. But it's not uncommon to hear cases that settle with, you know, a 50-50 split of the assets and debts. And if one person is making substantially more than the other person, or even a little bit more, then maybe in a 50-50 case, there's alimony awarded. We'll talk a little bit about alimony. Um, sometimes in lieu of alimony, there are cases where a party may get more of the marital estate than the other party. Maybe they're awarded 55% of the marital estate. Maybe they're awarded 60% of the marital estate. Maybe they have a disability, which might prevent them from uh, gaining income and assets in the future. And basically what they're getting out of their divorce is what they're getting. This is the rest of their life. What's equitable is what the court will focus on at that point, and there's a whole host of different ways that a case could resolve or be ordered by the court. I talked about alimony a little bit. Alimony is, um, alimony is also a creature of statute, and alimony is awarded based upon need. In, in Pennsylvania, there's a misconception that there's a formula for alimony and that every year you were married or for every three years you were married, you get one year of alimony. That is really not the case. There literally, you could pick up the divorce code today and go to section 3701 and read what the factors are in terms of alimony. And I'm gonna run through those very quickly. Um, courts look at the relative earnings and the earning capacities of the parties the ages and the physical, mental, and emotional conditions of the parties, their sources of income, maybe their expectancies of getting inheritances in the future. They look at the duration of the marriage. They look at the contribution by one party to the education, training, or increased earning power of the other party. Perhaps the wife was a stay-at-home mom who uh, chose not to work and save money while the other party uh, trained to be a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. The courts will look at that. Um, they will look at the extent to which a person's earning capacity after divorce um, is met with being the custodian of minor children. They'll look at the standard of living that the parties established during the marriage. A lot of times you hear on TV, it's the style to which you become accustomed. Well, that's not in our law, but the courts do look at the standard of living. They'll look at the education that the parties have, the assets and liabilities that they have that are non-marital, the property that they bought to the marriage, the contributions of one spouse as a homemaker, 
the relative needs. And only in this particular portion of the divorce code with respect to division of property or who gets what, in alimony, the court can actually look at the marital misconduct of either party during the marriage. Very important thing to say right now. In alimony, the courts can look at the bad conduct of the other party and possibly reward the innocent spouse by giving them alimony or giving them more alimony. It's important here to recognize that in equitable distribution, where you're deciding who gets what of the assets and the debts, <clears throat> the statute literally says that the courts will not look <clears throat> excuse me, at fault in the division of property. So in the division of property, adultery, cruel and barbarous treatment, all these things don't come into play. But in alimony, they can. So you've either concluded your case by way of settlement, or you've concluded your case by going to a master, or maybe even going to a judge, um, if you didn't like what the master had to say, which isn't entirely accurate. And you're going to get a decision which gives you either alimony <clears throat> or gives you a share of the marital estate. And after that, and only after that, the, the court is ready to enter your divorce decree. Now, I realize we uh, gave you a lot of information today. Hopefully, if you listen to this podcast and maybe you make some notes, maybe as you go on the Internet or you go into some legal um, sources and you read these things, these things will have made a little bit more sense to you at this point. I can't stress enough, though, that as confusing as the information that I just, as comprehensive and confusing as the information I just put forth may be to you upon listening to it first, it is that much more complicated for people that try to get into this process with the courts alone. Really, it is imperative that anybody that's even thinking about getting divorced, or maybe this is a situation that's been thrust upon them, or maybe they're being sued for divorce, and they're being told that there's really nothing they need to do, it'll just get entered at some point. It is really imperative that you seek the guidance of a trained professional um, in the areas of divorce and equitable distribution. Should you like to get in contact with our firm, Weber Gallagher, uh, in our Norris town or our Philadelphia office, you can call 610-272-5555 or you can look us up on the internet and we will be available to help you with any questions that you have in the context of family law or divorce. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Let's Talk Family Law. We hope you join us next month for another episode. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.